If you turn in your Bibles to Genesis 40, Genesis chapter 40, we're actually going to be talking about uh, that period of time when Joseph was in prison. Um, maybe a time of his life where not, not, uh, it might be mentioned in a message, but I don't know that a message would be brought from his time in prison. And that's what we're going to do this morning. Let me finish something here. The straight, the uh, shortest distance between two points is. Sure. A straight line, right? You've heard that before. Okay. It has been said that the longest distance between two points is a shortcut. Maybe you've been there. This morning we're going to be talking about shortcuts. You know, the hymn didn't describe shortcuts. It described the straight line. We're going to go through the trial. We're going to meet the trial. We're going to overcome in the trial. But you know, our flesh doesn't want to do that. Our flesh, I don't know about you, mine's always looking for shortcuts. Some way around it. Over it. Under it. There's got to be a way. Shortcuts. Shortcuts versus following God's plan. Following God's unfolding plan. You don't know what it is yet. God may have revealed some to you, part of his vision for your life. And if he has, and you've laid hold of it, then you say, I've got a vision for my life. But even at that, you still don't know everything that's going to happen. Would you like to know? Let's suppose, hypothetically, that on your way into chapel this morning, I had uh, back there at the door a table with a lot of binders on it. And as you came in, I found a, a binder that had your name on it. And in that binder is your life, your biography written. God's plan for you. Every day, it's in there. Is it not written? Does he not have a plan? Some through the fire, the waters, the flood. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. He brought me up also out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, set my feet on rock, and established my goings. Psalm 139.5, Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. Proverbs 3.6, In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Now, if I did that, if I had a binder with your name on it, I'm curious about this, and I'm serious. And it was right from God. How many of you would say, I want to read it? I want to know all of it. How many of you? Oh, you brave soul. Are you serious? You'd want to know. Do you know what's in there? Is it all, in a sense, good, fun, comfortable, enjoyable? <clears throat> 
Are there tribulations and trials in there that uh, if you knew what they were right now, you, must, you might just go do something different? Do you know, oftentimes then, when we finally, in God's unfolding plan, when we finally get to that chapter, and we turn that page, and, we, and we're faced with it, like it's today, there it is. It's happening. We might just as well look for a shortcut. Take out a, a pen and a pencil and try to change it, erase it, do something different, a shortcut. There's got to be a shortcut. Could be simple things like you have a, a paper to write. There's a trial. And you sit down to write it. You've got the time. How are you at shortcuts? Procrastinating is a shortcut. Plagiarism is a shortcut. Cheating is a shortcut. And just accepting bad grades is a shortcut. Yes? Is that right? Amen. Shortcuts. How about with authorities for a moment? How about with authorities? I'm going to start my message with the applications. That way when we get into this, you'll really be under conviction. <laughs> How about with authorities in your life? I've never asked this to the entire student body. I have with the men, but not for some time. So I just want you to be honest about this. With mom and dad, uh, times there's, if, you know, if there's some trial in your life, something you feel like you need to talk about or confess, one of them is easier to go to than the other one. Joe, just hang on a second. I'm going to take a little poll here in a minute. It's not always, but... Many times, one is easier. Like, I always go to so-and-so. And in that case, you're like, oh, no, I, I couldn't. I just, I just couldn't talk to Dan about this. I just can't. Although sometimes it can be the opposite. Okay, how many of you in your life years ago, <laughs> whatever, have found it easier to go to mom than dad? Okay, hands down. How many of you, uh, it's just the opposite. It's easier for me to talk to dad than mom. Okay. Man, Mr. Himes got in on this. That's good. <laughs> Wonder if the conviction will come too. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Can that be a shortcut? Could it? Think about it. Is it possible that the one that you really don't want to go to, I don't, it doesn't matter which one, but the one that's most difficult for you to actually break down and talk to is the one that you should. You know, shortcuts come in the path of least resistance. When I was in college, it was against the rules to walk across the grass. It was against the rules. It's not here. It isn't. But then we don't have thousands of students. Do you know what grass does when you walk across it with thousands a day? It doesn't stand a chance. So there was a rule. You get demerits. You know, that was challenging when you're on the sidewalk and these same thousands are going the same direction, going the same time. You're needing to get there, and you can't because it's full. It's full. And sometimes, for whatever reason, they were going the other way, and you're going this way. And the grass looked awful good. 
and I can see where I need to go to. But you're going to have to be patient because you've got to stay, stay on the path. Shortcuts. Shortcuts in schoolwork, shortcuts with authorities. Is it easier to talk to a roommate about whatever it is that you need to confess than to talk to the dean? Well, but it's accountability. Young people, if you're the right accountability person for them, then you're the one that's going to recognize this is something that your parent needs to hear. Have you talked to your parents? This is something that, you're, that the dean needs to hear. Have you talked to the dean? Shortcuts. How prone are you to taking shortcuts in your life? Confession of sin, maybe not to the right person and maybe not fully coming clean. You never actually dump the whole truck. It doesn't all come out. You've taken a shortcut. You know, it's possible also that in the process of seeking out a spouse, you would take a shortcut. Culturally, the world's taken shortcuts. Those shortcuts lead across the paths of many of the other gender, not just their own spouse. And it's a mess. Shortcuts come with consequences. It's really a lack of faith, isn't it? Faith is trusting that if I stay on the path, God, no matter what it leads to, you will work. I can see great and marvelous things happen, even miracles, if I just do right. If I stay faith-filled and don't take the shortcut. You know, the Bible is filled with examples. Eve was offered a shortcut with regards to knowledge, right? She take it? Yeah. How'd it work? That go okay? That's your grandma. Lot took a shortcut through Sodom and Gomorrah. Jacob, God had promised that he would be that which would, uh, you know, be ahead of his older brother. He would have needed his dad's blessing, and now came the moment when it looked like it was slipping away. He had a choice to believe God or, with the help of his mother, take a shortcut and deceive his father. Shortcuts. In some cases, we can say, but you could hardly blame them. But it's never right to take a shortcut. And sometimes we take so many, like we take this shortcut to that location and take a shortcut to the next one, maybe our life is just a bunch of shortcuts. We don't know what it's like to really live straight lines, no matter what they lead us to. Do you know in the matter of finding a mate, you know what a shortcut is? Flirting. Think about it. Flirting is a shortcut to faith. You say, well, that doesn't happen at BCM. You snickered, not me. <laughs> Shortcuts, young people. Shortcuts come with consequences. But faith, the straight line, the shortest distance, no matter what it leads you to, 
comes with reward. There's also examples of that. When Goliath, the big guys down in the Valley of Elah, the army of Israel, including, including their king, took a shortcut. You know what that was? Don't go down there. Right? Path of least resistance. Here we are. Shortcut. You know, one young man didn't take the shortcut. He went down to face the giant. Who saw the reward? Who saw the miracle? Faith, not the shortcut. Daniel, we heard yesterday, Daniel's straight line took him through the lion's den. He saw the miracle. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his disciples years before, their straight line took him through a fiery furnace. You know what the shortcut was? It was all the other Jews that were bound to the image. That was the easy path. Maybe they even convinced themselves that they would be alive to have influence to eventually lead Nebuchadnezzar to Christ or to the Messiah. Some, maybe they had justified it that way. Hey, at least we're going to be alive. At least we'll still have influence. Who had influence? Not those that took the shortcut. Remember that when you sit down to write your paper, when you're looking at your books, the, the materials, the things that you have to do to get caught up on. And instead, your flesh goes for the shortcut. Your phone, YouTube, whatever, procrastination, shortcuts. They don't come with reward. They come with a price. And young people, that price is not just something that you will pay. Do you know that there's a freshman class right now being formed for next year? Do you know that? They're in high school now. Do you ever think about them? I do. I know of one in Rhode Island. He's excited to come. First one from that church. I'm pumped. Your influence, your work in their life, your testimony has affected them. Yes. But don't you know that your shortcuts will too? It's not just you. When you sit down and you know what God wants you to do, you know the decision you're to make. You know you need to talk to dad. You know it. You know you need to get honest. You need to go to the dean. You need to not wait for somebody to come and ask you what's going on. You need to go let them know. Don't you know that's going to have consequences, not just in your life. Somebody else will be paying the price for that too. Or somebody else will experience the reward for your faith, right? I want to show you that today from the Word of God. When my, uh, I just got to give you one other uh, shortcut. This would be so obvious to you. Abraham and Sarah had been promised by God, the son of faith, and they took a shortcut through Hagar. Are other people paying for that shortcut today? 4,000 years later, is that still an issue? That shortcut? My wife and I had the opportunity to go to a Holocaust seminar here just, I don't know, two, three weeks ago, probably three now, down in Chattanooga at IBJM, the International Board of Jewish Missions there. And it was just a one-day seminar on the Holocaust. 
And there was one particular story that stood out to me. You know, there, were, there are many stories of people helping the Jewish people during, before and during World War II that are just remarkable. And are remarkable stories of people who didn't take shortcuts, who put their own life on the line, even when it wasn't convenient. One of those stories stands out to me. I want to share just a little bit with you. Man's name was Nicholas Winton. Nicholas Winton was a 29-year-old single stockbroker in London. He was also a Jew. He didn't want to be Jewish. In fact, he'd been baptized in the Anglican Church as a baby because his family no longer wanted to be Jewish. They had come from Germany years before. Now they lived in England. He was doing fairly well, and in 1938, as it approached uh, the wintertime, things were heating up in Europe. World War II had not started, but uh, already there was much news of persecution to the Jewish people that he was watching very closely from England, from safety. And in December, he had planned a skiing trip. He was quite athletic himself. He was on the British fencing team and was planning to attend the 1940 Olympics that would take place in Tokyo. And they would never happen. But he's on his way in 1938 to the Alps in Switzerland. He wants to go skiing. And he received a phone call from a friend who happened to be in Czechoslovakia and said, I think you need to cancel your trip and come to the Czechoslovakia and see what's happening. The Munich Pact had already been signed and Adolf Hitler, though the war hadn't started, was already expanding its borders into France, into Austria, and now into the Sudetenland of Czechoslovakia. And with German troops in Czechoslovakia, the Jews there were moving rapidly to the east to get away from them. 150,000 now were in makeshift camps in the winter of 1938 in Czechoslovakia when Nicholas Winton, a 29-year-old single man, arrived and observed what was going on. What can we do? Well, it was impossible to get all the people out, the Jews, to get them away from the Germans. Nobody guessed you know, all of what would happen, the Holocaust, at this point, but it didn't look good. But the opportunity was there, maybe, with a lot of work and effort and money, to get some of their children out. The plan was hatched. It was happening other places in Europe already. It was a lot of work. Many countries were closed to the idea of accepting unmanaged children, unaccompanied children. And there were many criteria. How would we get them there from Czechoslovakia all the way across Europe to Britain? There was really no other country. Sweden would take a few. The United States refused. Many countries refused to receive any of these unaccompanied children. Nicholas Winton spent the next weeks and months, factly the most of the year 1939 through the summer, planning and, and uh, raising the funds and all that was necessary to purchase train tickets and get permissions for the trains to travel. They were called the Kinter trains. They would travel from Czechoslovakia through Poland, through Hitler's Nazi Germany, out the other side into the Netherlands to the coast, where he had to arrange for freighters then to pick up the children and take them to England, where 
in order for them to, for the plan to work, Britain required that a sum be presented for each child to the tune of current money, $3,200 per child, and there had to be foster parents already there, ready to receive them off of the ship or they couldn't come. He spent many trips back and forth from England to Czechoslovakia to work out all the details. It was tireless. He spent many hours, a couple of night, an hours of sleep a night working this out and eventually uh, the first train left early in 1939. It worked. Eight trains would be arranged. Eight trains. The eighth train was due to leave September 1, 1939. That train never made it. 250 children were on that train. We don't know that any of them survived. But those that did in the seven previous trains were 669 children who went to England and there were accepted by already, by, based on the pictures and the photographs and the descriptions, uh, parents had already determined, I'll take that one. And they were there at the train or at the, uh, the, the station there with the ship to receive those children and to raise them. Their parents had told them, We'll be along in a month or two. They would never see their parents again. None of them. Nicholas Winton saved the life of 669 children. He didn't take any shortcuts. His life was not about him. You know, shortcuts are about us. Is that right? It's not about others. It's certainly not about God. In Genesis chapter 40 now, I want to take a look at the life of Joseph. We're just going to really just preach it. One sentence. <laughs> it's one sentence. It's two verses. This isn't the Apostle Paul, or it'd be many more verses. But uh, this is, this is, uh, you see, I don't have to go through the story because you know it. The butler and the baker, for whatever reason, offend the Pharaoh. They get put into prison. Uh, Joseph at this point happens to be there in the prison. And uh, he gets to know them. They're there in verse 4. It says, for a season. They're there for a season. I don't know what that means, but they didn't come yesterday. So he's gotten to know them. And he walks in one day, and they're both sad. Their countenance is sad, verse 6. And then it says that they, they had dreams. And Joseph uh, he goes about now to interpret their dreams for them. And he does the first one, the butler. And, uh, of course, it's good news. And the butler is going to be freed here in three days on Pharaoh's birthday. Look at verse 14. Now interjects here in Joseph's journey this one sentence. But think on me when it shall be well with thee. And show kindness, I pray thee, unto me. And make mention of me unto Pharaoh, and bring me out of this house. For indeed I was stolen away out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also have I done nothing that they should put me into the dungeon. It's one sentence. And he interjects this. The question is, is this, you know, we read this, and we've, you probably never thought about it. We think, wow, I mean, yeah, it's kind of a glimpse into how he's feeling about things, and you can't hardly blame him. But the question is, is what can we learn from this? Is this faith? Is this God's plan? 
What he just indicated here, is that Joseph's plan or is that God's plan? Well, let's take a look at it real quick. Let's take a look at it because even good people can have a lapse of faith like Abraham. And let's find out because we've got a sentence here to, to look at. But think on me. But think on me. But think on me. Why is he asking somebody to think about him? Why is he asking somebody to show kindness unto me? Because nobody else is. Nobody. I want you to look at another sentence in Joseph's life, and we go back to chapter 39, and uh, we know the story again that Potiphar's wife now presents herself to him in verse 7 and says, lie with me, and now we look at a sentence here, verse 8, but he refused. And said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master wotteth not what is with me in the house, and he hath committed all that he hath to my hand. There is none greater in this house than I. Neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Do you know that in chapter 40, verses 14 and 15, there's no mention of God? Think on me. Show kindness unto me. What would happen if we took that portion, that phrase, and put that in chapter 39 in front of Potiphar's wife. Think on me. Show kindness to me. Would that go well there? Is Joseph thinking of himself in front of Potiphar's wife? Yes or no? Do you know that's how he was able to weather that temptation? It's not about me. This isn't about me. But here in chapter 40, in prison, we have a little bit of breakdown. I don't belong here. I didn't do anything wrong. It's all true. That's all true. But the thought here is not about what God is doing in my life and what he wants to do. Does Joseph have a vision for his life? Yes. What is it? What is God's vision for Joseph's life? Does he know? Did he have visions? Did he have dreams? He knows what they are. Look at chapter 42. I'm sorry, 45. Go to 45 real quick. And look at verse 7. When he finally reveals himself to his brothers, God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. That's God's plan for Joseph's life. Does that include time spent in jail, time spent in slavery? Is that necessary to do what he needs to do? Go to chapter 50, verse 20. Chapter 50. Here now, after his father has died and the brothers are still, still thinking that Joseph is going to take out revenge on them, he says, Verse 20, but as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day, look it, to save much people alive. That's a nation today. Was it necessary for Joseph to go through his trials to save what would become the nation of Israel? Do you know enough of the story? Yeah. But here he is now. Let's go back to chapter 40. And look at this sentence. And let's see if 
what he's asking here to accomplish that. So 14 and 15 of chapter 40, let's read it again. But think on me when it shall be well with thee, and show kindness, I pray thee unto me. And where's the horsepower in this thing? Make mention of me unto Pharaoh. He's the one that can get something accomplished, right? No mention of God. It's Pharaoh. And bring me, notice here, out of this house. What does Joseph want to happen right now? Get me out of here. You got to get me out of here. I don't belong here. Get me out. I've had enough. Notice those words. Get me out of this house. Let's follow that line of thinking. What happens if, that, if the guy, which, you know, the butler goes and he forgets, the last verse there of that chapter says that he forgot, but let's suppose he didn't forget. Let's suppose that Joseph's plan happens. What's that mean? The butler goes to Pharaoh and says, oh, by the way, there's this young guy down in prison here. He happens to be 28 years old. We know that from the scripture. So he's 28, and uh, wow, he did something remarkable down there. And so I just want to put in a good word for him. His request is that uh, he get out of that house. He get out of prison. You suppose we can do something about that? And let's suppose that Pharaoh goes, well, I'm so glad to have you back. I don't know who this kid is, but yeah, that'll be fine. I don't care. That's good. Signs off on it. Joseph is now free. To do what? What happens next? What do you think Joseph is angling for? What's going to happen? What do you think? Is he going to go back to Potiphar and knock on his door and say, can I come back in? Where's he going? Where's he going? He's going home. I haven't seen dad in a long time. I wonder if he's still alive. He's old already. I haven't seen my brothers, Benjamin. I don't know. I'm going to go home. You suppose he wants to go home? You suppose he's thinking about home? So he goes home. Let me ask you a question. Does God's vision for his life, does it happen? If Joseph gets his plan, does it happen? Look, look, look. You've got to see this. Go from here now. Remember his words. Bring me out of this house. Look at chapter 41 and verse 40. Here's God's plan. This is what's written on that chapter in Joseph's book right here. In chapter 41 and verse 40, Pharaoh says, Thou shalt be over my what? He wants to get out of a house, which we know that to be a prison. He wants to get out. I want out. And God's plan is, you're going to be over Pharaoh's house. Now, which one is going to save much people alive? This one? No, he's just going to get mighty hungry with everybody else, right? But this one. This one is going to require him, however, to stay in prison for how much longer? Two years. A little lapse of faith here. It is a real trial. You can't hardly blame him, can you? You really can't. He didn't do anything wrong. The problem is... It's not God's plan, it's Joseph's. And it's going to take two more years in prison for Joseph to get back onto the ground of faith and trust God. No, God, you're doing right. 
This isn't wrong. You have a vision for my life, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to trust you for it. Now, how do we know that that happened? I'm going to show you real quick. We know the story, so I don't have to tell you the whole thing. We know that Pharaoh finally had dreams. Without those dreams, none of this is going to happen. Now Joseph is 30 years old, chapter 41. Pharaoh has two dreams. His, his men, who should be able to but cannot, obviously, come up with an interpretation. And that's when the butler remembers. And out comes Joseph, verse 14 of chapter 41. Look at this. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him hastily out of the dungeon, and he shaved himself and changed his raiment and came in unto Pharaoh. Now he's standing in front of Mr. Horsepower, right? And of course, Pharaoh says, I hear tell that you can interpret dreams. I've had dreams. I need you. Now, if we insert Joseph's plan at this point, we just take that sentence from before. Well, show kindness unto me. I need help. Get me out of the house. Listen, we can work a deal, Pharaoh. You have something that I want, and I have something that you want. Let's negotiate. Is that what Joseph did? Notice what he said. Verse 16. Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. That's how I believe that Joseph is back on the ground of faith. He's no longer thinking like he did two years ago. Somebody's got to help me out here. Somebody's got to get me out of this place. He is content at this point to interpret these dreams, to let God have the glory and go back to prison. No more shortcuts for Joseph. No more. And look what God does. It's not self-promotion. God is going to exalt him. He doesn't exalt himself. You've got to lift me out of this place. No. I'm willing to go back to prison. I'm willing to be single. I'm willing to be a student. I'm willing to go to seminary. I'm willing to go to my dad. I'm willing to go to the dean. It doesn't matter anymore. No more shortcuts. Why? For your benefit? No, for everybody else's benefit. It's not your life. You're not living for you. Not anymore. I can't do this anymore. Sitting on the edge of the fiery furnace, on the lion's pit, dangling my feet? No, I'm in. I'm in. I'm all in. No more. Nicholas Winton married after the war in 1948. He had three children, but he never told anybody what he had done. His wife didn't know. His children didn't know. The 669 children that he had saved were now raised and grown to adulthood, and they had no idea, no idea who was behind it, what it cost, how it happened, no idea. Then 1988 happened, almost 50 years after the Kinter trains, 50 years. Nicholas Winton's wife goes up to the attic. She's just walking through the attic, and she finds up there a, a well, <laughs> kind of a book. She opens it up. She didn't recognize it. Inside were all the pictures 
of all the children, all the documentation, their names, everything. What families had adopted them, it was all in there. She was blown away. Nicholas, of course, uh, fessed up. She took the book and gave it to the press. In 1988, a popular television program called That's Life aired the story for the first time, about 50 years after the event, for the first time. It had a viewership of 15 to 20 million people. It's a very popular program. They invited Nicholas Winton to sit in the front row and come while for the first time the story was told. Today there's a short clip of the story that is shown in Israel. It's been produced by Israel, and I'm going to show it to you. There are some stories which were not only an audience to, but may become their participants. Nikki's story came out by accident after this scrapbook surfaced after gathering dust for decades. Once it did, though, it said about a whole chain of incredible events. That's me before I left for England. But until 1988, I had no idea who had rescued me from all but certain death. It was this old man who had saved my life and that of hundreds of others in the Second World War. Yet for 50 years we knew nothing about him. Four children. This is his scrapbook. There are all kinds of fascinating pictures in it. Perhaps you can see this is a picture of Nicholas Winton himself with one of the children he rescued. If you look at the very back of this scrapbook, Fascinating things in it, all the letters. But back here is the list of all the children. This is Vera Diamant, now Vera Gissing. We did find her name on his list. Vera Gissing is with us here tonight. Hello, Vera. And uh, I should tell you that you are actually sitting next to Nicholas Winton. Hello. <laughs> I wore this around my neck, and this is the actual purse that we were given to come to England. And I'm another of the children that you saved. Can I ask, is there anyone in our audience tonight who owes their life to Nicholas Winton? If so, could you stand up, please?
everybody has to learn to live with everybody else, regardless of creed or religion. I never thought what I did 70 years ago was going to have such a big impact as apparently it has. And uh, if it has now got a story which uh, helps people to live uh, for the future, well, that will be an added bonus. Nicholas Winton passed away seven years ago at the age of 106. And it's estimated that the offspring of those 669 is 15,000. In that group are scientists and mathematicians, members of parliament, authors, architects, poets, and a chief rabbi of Jerusalem. Your life is not for you, but the shortcuts are. Either will have an impact. You're teaching all the time, instructing, but only one will have a reward, the other a consequence. <laughs>